Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. you're listening from and welcome to indoor air quality radio iaq radio my name is joe hughes or radio joe here with me in the studio is my co-host cliff slotnick hey joe good afternoon and we've got uh unsmoke instructor extraordinaire back again bill wagon hello joe and of course cj is at the controls hey joe cyber jockey zach slotnick thanks for joining us gentlemen we also have on the line our technical director dr dietrich wild dieter are you out there Hi there, good uh, good afternoon, good, good morning, good, whatever the case may be. Wherever you are. All right, great, Dieter. You're uh, on the road today, huh? Yes, but, I'm measuring lead in air. Uh, that's uh, always... I, I would imagine you get a lot of um, other work done while you're measuring that lead in air. <laughs> well, I can write the reports, and I have to be sitting here at 8 o'clock, and I got up this morning at 4.30, so... Uh, I'm already uh, halfway through the day, Great. more than halfway through the day. Great. All right, Dieter, we uh, have an interesting show today. We'll be pulling you in from time to time. That will be fine. Thank you, sir. First, let's uh, go through the lineup for today. We've got the microband trivia quiz, as usual, with Cliff Slotnick, and then we will have Mr. Davidge Warfield, Warfield excuse me, of URI Environmental, Inc., and, uh, of course, we will have Dr. Wow coming back in from time to time. We would also like to thank our sponsors, Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com, and Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings, Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dryease-eaz.com. Last but not least, John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at johndon.com. To contact the show, you go to the TalkShoe website, that's T-A-L-K-S-H-O-E.com. Get yourself a PIN number and an ID number. Our show ID is 1547. If you would like to email me, you can email me at joe.hughes, at iaqtraining.com. And don't forget to visit the iaqtraining.com website for the training you trust and dates for future training courses. Let me turn it over to my co-host, Cliff Slotnick, for the microband trivia quiz. Thanks, Joe.
firstly, congratulations to Chad Seams, who successfully answered last week's microband trivia question concerning the location where two rich and powerful men presumably had sex with their wives in the same bedroom. He correctly answered the question. The location was the Maralaga Estate in Florida. The microband trivia question for April 13th, 2007. Zach, the envelope, please. Oops, Oops. Sorry about that. <laughs> Here you go. Thank you. Okay, listen, listeners, answer us this. What is the connection and commonality between the word triskaidekaphobia and the Latin phrase ex luna scientia? I'll repeat it. What is the connection and commonality between the word triskaidekaphobia and the Latin phrase ex Luna Scientia. Back to you, Joe. That sounds like a tough one, Cliff. Triskaidekaphobia. Triskaidekaphobia. <laughs> it just rolls right off the tongue, now, doesn't it? Yeah. Sort of like, I, I uh, have one answer. I can't spell either one. So. <laughs> that, at, at least it wasn't an acronym, Bill. Uh, thank you. Uh, CJ was a little behind, a little behind the times on that one. You okay. <laughs> the acronym police. That's right. Uh-oh. Uh oh. <laughs> All right. I, actually, I'm going to turn it back to Cliff to introduce our first guest today. Okay. With a BS degree in computer science from the University of Maryland, Davidge Warfield is vice president at URI Environmental Inc. in Pottstown, Pennsylvania, where his many responsibilities include development and national expansion of their mechanical system evaluation and remediation and refurbishment service. And this encompasses marketing, commercial sales, training, and management of a large commercial service division. His areas of focus have been large commercial office properties, apartment complexes, healthcare facilities, schools, military facilities, biotechnology, and pharmaceutical manufacturing plants. Highlights from his long uh, career in distinguished industry service include being a past president of the National Air Duct Cleaners Association and being president of the um, environmental section of what's now the Restoration Industry Association and was formerly ASCR. Davidge has participated in standards writing work at ASHRAE, NADCA, and IICRC. He's the author of over 50 articles in national publications on various aspects of mechanical hygiene and duct cleaning. He's the 90, 1995 recipient of the Golden Quill Award for the Restoration Industry Association for the best technical article of the year. He's a public speaker at wide number of organizations and has been doing that from 1987 until the present. Uh, he's been an instructor of the Certified Mechanical Hygiene course at ASCR. Uh, he's a past instructor at Merck, uh, and as a matter of fact, both Dieter, Joe, and I, when we went to our first mold course at Merck, Dieter was one of the instructors there. Uh, he has many notable projects in his career, uh, working at the uh, Department of Transportation National Headquarters, uh, the NIH AIDS Research Center, Bethesda, Maryland, many hospitals, and uh, universities and pharmaceutical firms. Well, we want to welcome Davidge. I think we have some introductory music for you here. Hey, the clean air man. Well, first, Davidge, how did you go from having a 
degree in computer science to becoming interested in air and indoor air quality? Uh, the long progression of that. First of all, thank you, Cliff. Uh, yeah. I, I started in a unrelated business for 10 years when I was 16 and uh, had a severe back injury, which recognized that I couldn't do this uh, type of work. So I went and got an education, and I felt at the time that uh, I had run a small business or owned a small business and could, if I understood computers, could computerize small businesses, and that was going to be my second life. Uh, about that time, I guess the sixth business uh, that I started to computerize uh, was a furnace and duct cleaning business in Washington, D.C., one of the largest furnace and duct cleaning businesses. And at that time, I also had in the back of my mind that people were talking about indoor air quality, and it was the uh, wave of the future back in the 1980s, early 80s. I uh, had an experience when I was growing up as a child. I built or helped build because we worked on a farm, built a total confinement pig operation, and we basically took pigs out of a field and put them in a building. And when we completed that, we had a significant amount of problems and illnesses. We lost probably 30 to 40 percent of the herd and turned around and went out to uh, the Midwest to find out what the solution was and found that the solution was ventilation or improper ventilation, which has caused a tremendous amount of sickness. Hmm. Uh, so coupling that experience with uh, this newfound indoor air quality uh, arena, uh, I got a phone call. Actually, I got an article okay, in the Washingtonian Magazine in 1983, which said that EPA was the sickest building in the country. I picked up the phone, called them, and said I could solve the problem. And from that, I received a huge contract and a wealth of information and knowledge from EPA on indoor air quality. And that was back in 1983, David? 1985-87, yeah. yes. Trem that's interesting. I, I didn't know that. Thanks for joining us here, and uh, we really appreciate having you on. I had written up a little intro last night and said that we were going to talk about HVAC systems and indoor air quality, indoor environmental quality. What uh, I guess let's start out with what's the biggest challenge with respect to establishing um, indoor air quality from you know good indoor air quality from an HVAC standpoint? I would say the first thing is in past construction modes, the record keeping and data uh, is very inaccurate. So you start off with three quarters of the knowledge. Uh, secondly, over time in commercial buildings, especially, Buildings get modified, changed, rooms get added, altered, data, data rooms get changed, and nobody keeps track of what actually is going on with the engineering aspect of the HVAC system. What construction practices, uh, you know, you've been involved for many years in this industry, and I'm, I'm curious, over the last, let's say, 10 years or so, what construction practices have you noticed that have really changed indoor air quality from an HVAC uh, standpoint? The biggest and most significant change is what's called building commissioning. And for everybody to understand that, let me just uh, deviate just a second. The traditional old-fashioned way of commercial building was for an architect to come up with a design, the engineer to come up with a way to make the design work, those two people, okay, with the architect would generally hire a construction manager. 
a construction manager would figure out how he could save money on the building by chopping each one of the trades. Each one of those trades got chopped, changed, or altered, or somebody came up with an ingenious solution to save money. Nobody took a look at the building system effect. After this building was three-quarters built, the rule of thumb, okay, for QA, QC on a commercial building is a process called testing and balancing. Testing and balancing is basically hired or contracted by the mechanical contractor, the one that put in the system, and there's always been a significant amount of conflict of interest between the test and balancing and the building contractor, and 90% of the time, the building, okay, couldn't be fixed if there was a major mistake. They kind of made it work the best they could. Secondly, there's also a, a big difference in seasonality, so I'm testing and balancing as the heating and cooling loads change over the time. Nowadays, okay, what people are doing is they are going out and hiring what's called a commissioning agent who starts at the building commissioning process when it's constructed or when it's designed and takes that design intent all the way through the construction of the building. Davidge, what could you go into a little bit more detail? What is air balancing, and how is it done, and what is its value? Uh, air balancing is uh, two things, okay? One, to determine that you have the proper temperature in a room, and the second is to determine that you have the proper amount of airflow going into that room or ventilation rates. Uh, there is a new, well, there's a standard that's been out for a long time called ASHRAE Standard 6289, which is ventilation for acceptable indoor air quality, which prescribes rates and airflow for not only outdoor air coming into the building, but also for the amount of air that should be circulated in an office room. I'm curious, David, you mentioned ASHRAE, and, uh, well, before the acronym police get me here, that's the, uh, wait a minute, uh-oh, <laughs> yeah, ASHRAE. Please pull over. <laughs> the American Society for Heating, Refrigeration, and Air Conditioning Engineers. Engineers. Thank you. Um, they've got a new, what is it, a user's guide, that 180P or 180 stand? Uh, what, could you tell us a little bit about that, what your thoughts are? Basically, what that you know guideline uh, refers to is inspection and maintenance procedures for a commercial building. Because up to now, it has never been an industry accepted uh, guideline to determine how frequently you should change the filters, to how frequently you should check the coils, where you should inspect the system. Uh, you know, on down to pumps. Uh, there's a significant amount of operational things in a building that nobody has a guideline other than the equipment manufacturers and equipment manufacturers typically uh, vary quite a bit. So have you had a chance, I, I understand it's fairly new, and have you had a chance to review that and, and look it over, and what are your thoughts if you have? Well, I'm on the committee, so. Yeah, well, then you've had a chance, all right. <laughs> well, Bob, I've got a little bit of input in it. Uh, so my only comment on that document uh, that is negative, I think it's very positive, I think it's very good, is that I feel that there should be something in a design criteria that requires accessibility for maintenance. In other words, people typically squeeze HVAC systems up in any place, shape, or form, sometimes very inaccessible for maintenance. 
Now, Mr. Baker threw me a curveball there. He asked, told me to ask you about uh, 180, and I didn't realize you were even on the committee. So, <laughs> <laughs> I, I apparently you're uh, you have a good uh, opinion of that uh, of that document. And I, I think it's long overdue. Obviously, we need that type of stuff. Cliff, I understand. Yeah, you Davidge, have you found that HVAC systems are effective in controlling humidity within built environments? The first thing that most uh, people should understand is that an HVAC system, when it's designed, is originally designed to comply with ASHRAE standard 62 for a prescribed percentage of time. It's either 90% of the time, 95% of the time, or 99.6% of the time. And quite often, uh, the problem is that our climate has changed so much over the last 10 years especially with humidity, that the design criteria, you can't match the design criteria because the weather data changes so frequently. What uh, other, go ahead. And I guess to add on that, somebody needs to understand that my only experience is in problem buildings. So I never see the good buildings. <laughs> it seems to be a plethora of problem buildings. What other issues are overlooked with HVAC systems, and, and how can a building owner, you know, make sure that those things are, you know, like the, the one you just mentioned, the access, that's a big, you know, that's a huge issue. But how does the building owner make sure that's taken care of and, and reduce their possible problems down the road or liabilities, I guess? First one is accessibility. The second of all is a priority, uh, I think, because an HVAC system and a ventilation system is out of sight, out of mind. It gets very little attention. Uh, you know, I always explain that the only the biggest room in a commercial building that is never cleaned or addressed is the room if you took all of the sheet metal of the duct system, opened it up, flattened it out, and made a room. That would be the biggest room that has never been cleaned or addressed, and that's the air. That's the room from which okay we get all our air. So the mechanical room access and then. Maintenance the yes. and the ductwork, okay. I mean, I can give you an unbelievable amount of examples where schools, for example, have taken uh, a known problem with maintenance on an HVAC system and decided not to fund it over floodlights on a football field and, you know, winds up costing the school district millions of dollars. Give us one of those. That sounds interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I, that, that's it in a nutshell, okay? You know, school 25 years old had significant maintenance problems with HVAC systems. Uh, this was back in 1991 uh, when indoor air quality was not as scientific and there was a lot of fear about indoor air quality. They developed a mold problem as a result of not addressing. They had the money slated and funded and approved for HVAC system repairs and changeouts, and they decided to put floodlights up cost them uh, an unbelievable amount. The whole school had to be remediated. Uh, it was actually three schools put together, one of these larger school projects, and one of the schools actually came down as a result of this, and they had to rebuild it. Wow. Bill? Davidge, in your opinion, what role could uh, ultraviolet light have in addressing microbial contamination in, in HVAC systems? People need to understand with ultraviolet light that it is only successful in direct contact with a surface. So in the area of 
cooling coils, ultraviolet light can be very effective in reducing bacterial growth on cooling coils. But just because an ultraviolet light is placed in a duct system, the speed of the air going through, okay, does not allow it sufficient time to dwell time to kill mold and mold organisms. Cliff? You've done volunteer standards work at NADCA, IICRC, and ASHRAE. Any noticeable differences uh, between their, any processes of these groups? Uh, yes, okay. And, you know, you need to understand that ASHRAE is an organization that's uh, close to 100 years old, actually over 100 years old, and they've developed uh, a process for standard development that, has understood the test of time, and you know I think ASHRAE must have 150 to 200 standards uh, out in the field, so they've got a tremendous amount of experience. Uh, NADCA, we when we first did the uh, original standards, it was we were just you know a bunch of guys that wanted to do something good for the industry and set a benchmark. Uh, we didn't do it anywhere near according to ANSI format. IICRC. I think IRCRC did a, a very good job on the water restoration, but again, the mold restoration, which is IICRC S520, is so complex and is so unknown and requires a science level above and beyond what you know, most of the committee members, including myself, are familiar with. Acronym uh, police are going to be hit on me again here now. Let's, let's get this right. We've got the uh, NADCA. National Air Duct Cleaners Association and IICRC, the Institute of Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification Bill. Bill even knows that one. He is the acronym police, by the way. <laughs> License and registration, please. <laughs> All right. So are you still involved with the uh, revisions process with the S520, Davidge, the IICRC's uh, mold remediation standard? Yes, indirectly. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. On one of the cha- one of the chapter reviews. Chapter review. And have you? Where where are we? I mean, I'm you know I've been seeing things go- coming and going. Do you think uh, things are moving along a little better now, or? <laughs> I honestly, if I knew the answer to that, okay, I probably could win the lottery. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Just thought I'd give it a shot, David. You never know. I think everybody is grappling with uh, it. Is a very tough subject to wrap your hands around, and uh, they did a you know good job of making a stab at it. But or, you know, a, a document that is better than you know it's the only standard out there. But I think uh, as we learn more in this industry, refinements are necessary. You know, you're the first person I ever heard use the word refurbishment, and my question is, what's the difference between an HVAC system cleaning and an HVAC system refurbishment? Uh, after having experience for uh, five to ten years in cleaning HVAC systems and uh, recognizing that there were still problems after we cleaned them, I started uh, investigating uh, from more of a scientific viewpoint what was actually happening with cleaning versus refurbishment and refurbishment relates to taking the problems of the system and fixing the problems of the system. A, a good analogy for that is everybody's heard of an HVAC drain pan, which is to me an oxymoron because most drain pans are a flat piece of sheet metal with edges and it doesn't drain. <laughs> so, uh, 
in the cleaning process, you would take that and you would clean it, use a biocide, and erase the bacteria or mold in it. If you wanted to refurbish that, you would take that and you'd make you'd re- remove it and make a sloped drain pan that would take the water out of the airstream. David, uh, do adequate training programs for techs doing the H- actual work of cleaning and refurbishing exist? And if so, you know where where could people get that type of training? I I don't think there's first of all it's such a diverse topic, okay, that I think you need to understand what area you want to focus in. Uh, that's just like saying, uh, you know, what do I need to do to understand uh, you know uh, operating and maintaining an aircraft carrier? There's so many different components. You know, the control systems have gotten very sophisticated. Cleaning measures and protocols have gotten uh, have had a heightened sense of uh, cleanliness or hygiene. The HVAC systems, uh, the operation and maintenance of them, people like train do an excellent job of training on their equipment and on other equipment. And I think there are I could off the top of my head uh, think of you know five or six different areas where there is good individual component analysis, but very little in terms of a building system. I my understanding is, David, it's becoming tougher to find good technicians, HVAC technicians. Are you running into that same issue? I, I think all of the skilled blue-collar trades are experiencing the same thing. That is correct. And so these trade schools, et cetera, I would imagine that would be the first place you would look. Uh, you've got a young, maybe a son or daughter out there that wants to get into this trade. Is, are there good trade schools available for that type of work? And then you would move on to specializing in some area, like cleaning or installation or maintenance? Correct. Okay. There's also some excellent Botech programs. There's also some dev- some very good programs, you know, put out by like NEB and AAVC on testing and balancing. Uh, there, there, believe me, there's plenty of good training available. Well, speaking of training, I, you do some training on uh, certified mechanical hygiene, I believe, or certified certified mechanical hygienist. Is that a training program, or is that a? I, I noticed that's a certification program. Can you tell us a little more about that program? Who it's through and how things are going with that? Uh, what my idea was when I conceptualized that, that type of program was to anybody can go through and teach cleaning, but not very many people can go back go through and teach what needs to be addressed from a term of refurbishment for an HVAC system when they become 20 to 30 years old. Uh, you know, we have different standards that have changed. You know, our requirements for outdoor air have changed over the past 20 years and a 20-year-old building needs some kinds of modifications to be able to be compliant with today's standards. Uh, I think you're probably most people are familiar with the, the case of Uhura at all, which is the EPA building, which uh, basically, you know, BOCA code says that you build a building that year and your building is compliant as long as you built it to code that year not necessarily taking into account changes that happened 20 or 30 years later. And what happened when they went to court, they found out that because the preponderance of the evidence on the engineering community was that the current standards were applicable, the building owner could be held negligent.
That's going back to the EPA building that you mentioned That's earlier? That's one case, okay. There's probably about 150 to 200 different settlements over the course of the last 10 years. And these um, all indicate that you, you need to upgrade things to the point of the current state of the art. Is that stating it that properly? Correct. Not the current state of the art, but the current recognized standards. Current recognized standard of care, I guess it would be your standards. That, that is exactly right. Did you do any work in New York City following 911? If so, uh, what role did you play? Yes, I was one of a plethora of people that was there. My primary role was to investigate HVAC systems and make sure that they were hygienically cleaned and oversaw several buildings right in the downtown area mm -hmm. to determine that they had been cleaned properly and were acceptable for occupancy. You know, the fact that you were involved in this one catastrophic event, uh, has it made you do any thinking about dealing with a potential avian flu pandemic and how that might involve HVAC systems and buildings? The current thinking is that HVAC system operation okay, plays a critical role in trying to alleviate problems with avian flu in a particular building. Uh, I think the biggest uh, focus is to make people critically aware that uh, they need to prepare for some type of pa such a pandemic and with uh, trying to expend monies for something that may happen in the future, it tends to be a hard sell. What what types of uh, can you explain a little more in a little more detail what you found in these buildings? I mean, was it uh, seems like there was such a huge soup of things that would have been in these um, HVAC systems? And did you test it to see what exactly was in there? Or did you just go in and tell them, look, you've got to clean this? Can you give us a little more detail? No, I, I worked in conjunction with industrial hygienists, both on the building owner side and on the tenant side, and. Uh, at first, okay, I don't think people understood the amount of particulate that uh, could have entered into HVAC systems, that could have bypassed filter systems, and there was a significant amount of testing done for, you know, asbestos, heavy metals, cadmium, lead, uh, microbial, uh, asbestos, I said ACM, in, uh, in ventilation systems, and people went overboard to make sure that they were clean so that they could reoccupy the building. Davich, have you ever used water in HVAC cleaning? <laughs> I used it in close training school years ago. <laughs> <laughs> I, we have used water, yes. Uh, we obviously use water quite a bit when you're around the HVAC unit or around coils. We use water for coil cleaning. Uh, we typically have a problem because most low-class, you know, duct systems are not sealed and they have leaks so that if we would use water, uh, they would tend to leak and we'd have a problem on a drop ceiling or an ancillary problem. But the water is from a damp rag is used all the time. What, uh, I'm, I'm curious, you clean a lot of these systems and I'm not you know, I don't go out and do all this cleaning. We oversee every once in a while the uh, cleaning of these systems. You hear different terminologies, the contact vacuuming, uh, the air washing, the use of different um, mechanical processes, whips and, you know, uh, brushes, etc. What's your thoughts on those different methods for cleaning these systems? Well, 
Uh, the question is what level of high team you want to clean it to. And in my experience, there's two, two general things in a duct system. There is a film on the side of the sheet metal, and then there is dirt or particulate loose material on top of that. No air tool will clean the film off the side of a duct, uh, and it's questionable whether any air tools will effectively clean all the particulate. Uh, I know going back to my years, uh, you know, 20 years ago, when we were using truck-mounted pieces of equipment, we used to use a truck-mounted, we used to connect an 8-inch hose to a duct system, put it under a negative pressure, so to speak, and use a Cadillac blower to blow the registers. And that was our means of cleaning. And the theory behind that was if we had a truck that was running four to 6,000 CFM of air through the duct system in reverse mode, when you turn the system on, which only had 1,800 to 2,000 CFM, you wouldn't get any dirt blowing out. In other words, the effectiveness of the cleaning was not that great, okay? Mm-hmm. And, you know, my personal opinion is that you need to put a brush on the side of a duct if you're going to clean it. And it gets to be very tricky because most of the brushes that you're using in today's world are round brushes, and you've got a rectangular duct. <laughs> Davidge, what's your opinion? There's other types of duct systems uh, besides metal systems. What are your opinions on, on flex ducting and, and lined duct systems as well? At first, when it comes to lined, internally lined duct systems, it's my experience that 90% of the microbial problems that we've experienced in duct systems can be directly attributed to duct liner. Uh, flex duct, uh, if it's the old type canvas duct work, we replace it as part of our normal uh, cleaning process. Uh, it's very difficult to clean flex duct accurately. It's also very difficult for particulate to accumulate it unless it's in the grooves, and that can be blown out with air. What was the most unusual HVAC system that you've ever worked on, and, and where was it? I don't know that there's any one unique system. I think it's just a, a conglomerate of all different types of systems. One of the more unique ones is where radiant heat is run through the ceiling, and they run an air system across that radiant heat. is some type of cleaning. is some type of means of cooling. That's in a 40- to 50-year-old building. Uh, in theaters, uh, some of the oddball ventilation systems that they have for cooling and heating a, a theater audience uh, with using areas right underneath the seats as part of their ventilation mechanism uh, seem to be fairly tricky. What I had mentioned is before you had mentioned Battleship, and I just wondered whether you'd ever been on an oil rig cleaning system or on a battleship or an aircraft or the space shuttle or, you know, something unusual as opposed to uh, in a building. Yes, I've done, uh, I've done a number of ships, not, you know, I probably count them on two hands. Uh, but we've done some of the oceanographic ships, some mm -hmm. of the Coast Guard ships. I, there, everything is constructed very well. It's very solid, very secure, and it is fairly easy to clean because most of it's ground dust work, which makes it that much easier. Done some cruise ships, uh, same thing. You need a bunch of portable equipment because you don't have any air compressors out there. You got to bring them up, by, you know, by forklift or onto the onto the facility. But they're fairly easy to clean. Let me get one more in here, and then I, I want to bring Dr. Wow in for a moment. Hopefully he's still listening. Um, 
just to break up things a little bit and also give him a chance to ask a question. But I, I really like to go back to the interior line duck. First of all, could you comment on the use of the brushes on the interior line duck? It seems to me that would be problematic. And secondly, can you talk to us a little bit about your thoughts on coating interior line ducts? First, on brushes on line duct systems, you know, when you talk about interior lining, uh, there's a diverse amount of linings that you know transgress the last 30 or 40 years, but based on the surface that they put on, now they have a much harder surface than they did before. There's what's called vinyl mat facing that any time you put a brush on something like that, it would disintegrate and you'd ruin the, the liner by putting a brush on it. So you have to determine, first of all, what type of interior line duct it is, and then... That's correct, okay. And in today's world, in cleaning, if you're trying to just get loose particulate off, that's fine. But in my experiences, we've uh, tried to, you know, address mold remediation in interior line duct work. Uh, we have consultants out there that would lead you to believe that there's only what's called surface contamination online duct work, but it's been my experience that contamination extends into the, into the material itself. And if you would want to have a temporary solution, coating is always possible. Uh, the bigger problems with coating are, number one, uniform of application. Number two, your humidity control, because if it is a high humidity area, you tend not to get the coating to dry properly tend to have odors as a result of that. Okay, let's see if we can get uh, Dr. Weil on the line here. Hello, whoop, hang on, there we go. Hello, Dieter, are you still with us? Yeah, Joe, can you hear me? I'm on a speakerphone. Yeah, That's we good. can hear you pretty well, actually. Any questions? Oh, okay, or... then I, that, that should work then. Questions good are... afternoon, David. <laughs> Hello, Dieter, how are you? All right. Any questions or comments? Well, David must have been to the same buildings that I visited <laughs> in the past. No drawings, no maintenance records, and I don't know whether these drawings, the original drawings, ever existed. In the old days, many of these ventilation systems were an afterthought. Oh, we forgot the air conditioning system here. Oh, yeah, we can do it. When the building is finished, we just add that one in, and we always can find a space for uh, 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 some ductwork of some kind and some diameter. That's, uh, I guess. That's exactly right. <laughs> more, you know, more to, more to the point, uh, as things have changed and we've understood more about ventilation and the requirements of better ventilation, you know, we've gone from a, a change where sick building syndrome meant that 20% of the people had to complain in a building. Okay. 20% have with them. And it, <laughs> yeah, well, in today's world, okay, if it's one or two, we have what's called a sick building, okay, or building-related illness, as, as the technical term might be. But the, the requirements for comfort, okay, have certainly changed over, you know, back in the days when you used to open a window and that was your comfort. Absolutely. We had a gentleman in uh, <clears throat> in a class this week who works for the government, and uh, when we discussed that 80% uh, as being the definition of acceptable, 
he was uh he had relayed to us that uh, you know that was far from acceptable in his world and uh obviously that's becoming more and more you know nationally i mean you talk to people about 80 percent it's like well 80 out of 100 are happy that doesn't sound too good to me are, are you running I think into this, just so you understand the reason behind the 80 20 rule was because back in those days the control mechanisms were such that one control okay could control 20 percent of the building's ventilation system and they didn't have individual controls or room controls I, a lot of the problems we see today are where <laughs> we have renovated buildings and the thermostat for this controls the BAV boxes in a different room than the actual uh, outlets. Uh oh, we got the acronym. Please hit me with the VAV. No. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> variable air volume. The variable air volume. What's what are some of the the difficulties with cleaning those types of systems, Davidge? Can you explain a little bit more about what variable air volume systems are and how? They might be more difficult to clean than others if they are. Yes, I you know just to to, to educate people that might not be familiar, uh, systems were typically created as what's called a constant volume system, which means that you had a fan uh, delivering air to a duct, which delivered X amount of air to each room. And in order to save money, uh, people got ingenious and said, well, why do we need to condition a room that's unoccupied, or why do we need to provide the same amount of air to a conference room as we do to an individual room. So what they did is they created individual boxes which regulated the ventilation based on a thermostat or the temperature of that room uh, so that they could save money on uh, their HVAC system. Uh, the biggest problem we have uh, with VAV systems is, number one, as they diminish and require no, uh, the thermostat gets satisfied, they have no ventilation. So that means that for the period of time until they become energized and require that the temperature requires it, you get no ventilation at all in that room or a very restricted amount of ventilation. Uh, as far as cleaning those, number one, they've got fiberglass on the inside of them, and typically we find where the throat collar, okay, is not two and a half times the diameter that you're going to have problems in the VAV system, and it needs to be uh, the insulation needs to be replaced or more economically you just might as well replace the VAV box. Could could you repeat that again? I'm sorry, I didn't quite catch the the numbers that you put by us right there. That sounds like it would be something that people should be aware of. I in any first of all you have in a VAV system you have what's considered a high pressure duct, okay, which comes to the VAV system, the VAV box. And then after the VAV box is typically low pressure. And the placement of the sensor that determines the static pressure is critical to determining what type of airflows you will and won't get through a VAV system. And quite often, people, when they're manufacturing, when they're installing them, put the uh, sensor too close to the VAV box. And therefore, because there's so much turbulence there, it in effect, it in effect doesn't work properly. And they get condensation inside the VAV box. And you had mentioned a, a diameter of some type that caused problems as well. Right. That's, yeah, basically, it has to be two and one-half times the distance okay, from the, from the VAV box, the diameter of the duct that goes into it. It has to be two and one-half times the distance from the box. That's correct. And 
we're getting highly technical because there's pressure-dependent and pressure-independent boxes, and this is typically in pressure-dependent boxes, and we get everybody lost in the details. If you I understand. Well, every once in a while, it's good to get people to think a little bit here. That's okay, right. Davidge. Cliff, it's good for you? people to understand that there are a lot of technical things that go into the construction of a HVAC system, uh, as opposed to just some sheet metal and a few controls. I was wondering if I can get you to do an Oliver North uh, moment. Uh, you know, he has this TV show about war stories, and I suspect that uh, in your long and illustrious career that you've got one war story that kind of stands <laughs> out, and a lot of the, the listeners really are into that. And I was just wondering if you had something you wanted to share there. I, <laughs> if I only had one, okay, I'd be a miracle. It was the best one then. <laughs> You know, a couple, a couple that stand out, okay, in mind is one we were doing uh, work in a major high-rise commercial building at night, and one of our workers went to sleep uh, inside the ductwork. We didn't know it, and we locked him in the ductwork overnight. Uh, <laughs> yeah, all right. He didn't sleep again, believe me. <laughs> uh, Long night for one, him. <laughs> second one that was probably more critical is also in a very, very high-profile commercial building, nine stories tall we were replacing removing and replacing the insulation in one of the vertical risers and in order to accentuate the process what we use is we use an airless sprayer for our adhesive and one of the halogen lights down on the ground uh, fell against the light while they were pulling it and caused a fire spontaneous combustion <laughs> while we had people inside the duct pushed it about oh, 60 feet in the air oh how do you get them out of there quickly <laughs> Fortunately, what had happened is because you have a limited amount of air inside an HV inside of a duct system, what happened was the fire went all the way up above uh, to the ceiling, okay, the ninth floor, and uh, combusted up there. They had an explosion, and they were actually fine, not a you know not a scar. It was a luck, one of the luckiest things in the world. Now, just recently, I was reading, and I I didn't really get the details on it, and I'm curious if you heard about this. A gentleman was doing some duct cleaning and fell through a vertical rise and, and actually died from the fall. Did you hear anything about that? Are you familiar with that at all? Fortunately, not on my watch, but we have lost some <laughs> robots that way. Okay. Where they go, you know, they're backing them up and they go up, fall in the vertical lift and we lose them. Well, that, I, I haven't heard much since, but I did see it maybe about a week ago um, that uh, someone was doing some duct cleaning and they fell through and Unfortunately, uh, I would imagine you've got to have some pretty significant fall protection in place for those types of jobs. You've got you're up nine stories. You're working on a, a vertical rise. What type of fall protection do you put in place? Uh, well, you know, you always want a dual safety system. Uh, you know, give any, another war story that we had. We had a um, duct that we were doing an emergency fire job on a commercial building, and we had to do the riser. And in order to do the riser, we got a one-man cage. Somehow we fitted inside the ductwork in the mechanical system. We had somehow cantilevered a beam over to go over top of the system, and we had three people working on it. One person was a supervisor. The supervisor was like at 220 pounds. The other two people were about 90 pounds soaking wet. And two that were 90 pounds uh, got tired. They brought up the cage. They put the heavy guy in, and needless to say, okay, the lift fell, it cantilevered just a little bit, and uh, we had a guy stuck in the duct system for a while with two 90-pound guys. Just uh, <laughs> couldn't lift the 250-pound guy out. 
They couldn't pull them out, huh? Yeah. Davidge, these uh, technicians, do you have them confined space trained as well? Yes. Uh, typically, we're OSHA 40-hour, which includes confined space. And it's a requirement. Uh, it's amazing in today's world with a lot of the military work that we're doing that uh, we're required to test the ductwork to see if it's a permittable confined space before we enter into it, even though it's a supply duct system. That's interesting. Then. What are the differences for our listeners between a confined space and a permit confined space? Well, any place, uh, don't quote me on this, but any place that is uh, not generally used, okay, as a means of entrance and egress, has only one means of entrance and e egress, uh, is considered a confined space. And what generally is done, you have to test that area to determine if you have sufficient amount of oxygen, you don't have any hazardous gases in that area before you put somebody in. And a permittable one in this case is one that is deemed, and it's a big difference between, uh, let's say, if I ask five OSHA people, okay, I would get five different answers on what is and what is not a permittable okay. duct system or Thank confined you. space. I mean, we have some people that say, a duct system is a duct system. It's a breathing space. It's no big deal. You don't need to permit it. Uh, we have other people say we need the records to determine it. Are you Not doing much work overseas, or is all of your work here in the uh, in the states, Davidge? In the last five years, most of it, the predominant amount of it, has been here in the United States. You know, prior to that, I did do some work overseas in Europe and Mid East. Were there um, significant differences in the way things were done there as opposed to here? I would say not so much how things are done, but you need to understand that, uh, number one, uh, Europe, which is where I did a predominant amount of work, uh, they construct duct systems much more securely than we do here in the United States. Uh, you know, one of the typical things that we have uh, that we have to face all the time is a duct that's 40 feet in the air, like, for example, over top of a swimming pool. Hmm. It's big enough for us to put somebody in to clean it. And we send somebody in there, is it going to support it or is it not going to support a person? But in in Europe, that would not be a problem? Is that the... No, they're, they're, they secure everything. I would say they construct things so that they last for a longer period of time than we tend to over here in the United States. Well, let's see, uh, let's, let's see if the, the or my German friend is still on the line here. Dieter? Yes. You still can you there? hear me again? Yeah, we can hear you very well. Thank you. Um, I know that you uh, have quite a bit of experience traveling through Europe. Has that been your experience, too? They've constructed things a little more soundly? Oh, absolutely. Uh, there is no, no question about it. And the last time I was there, which is now going on, two, uh, on, on three years, um, I, I, I started looking at construction sites. And even the interior of a construction site before it's finished, you can see it's, it's, it's much more solid. And from my own experience, when my mother wanted to hang a picture in our house, you needed a hammer drill to get a nail in there somewhere. So the construction is quite different, even though in the last you know, 30 or so years, uh, it has changed. They they are cutting corners, which in the old days they did not do. And perhaps another thing, and David uh, mentioned that too, is the training on all levels, whether it's, you know, the blue collar, the trades, uh, 
And um, to the best of my knowledge, I think about 10 years ago, maybe a little bit longer, maybe 12 years ago, I taught the last ventilation course at the University of Pittsburgh. And in the old days, we had it in the uh, mechanical engineering department and in the Graduate School of Public Health. Mort Korn taught it. In fact, I learned it from Mort Korn. Then I took over and I taught the same course. And then I, ever since I'm gone, we don't teach it anymore. Now, where can the poor guys learn it? It's impossible. Thank you. All right, thanks. More to the point, okay, is will the contractors pay for these people to go to the schools and classes? And that's the bigger problem. Sounds like uh, we've got to try and change things a little bit here, Davidge. And I know you've been working within different associations. Can you tell us a little bit about your work with the RIA and, and what you're doing with that group now with the mechanical hygiene? I, I don't think it's that much different than with ASCR. Uh, what we're trying to do is, and I think RIA has just gone through a, a tremendous change to focus on uh, the needs of the members, hopefully, and a part of that need, okay, will be the requirement for mechanical hygiene training and for people to understand. Uh, I, you know, I have some people that have been through the class and the course, and while you know, they don't feel that they're going to use that material, they feel that the knowledge they've gained helps them become a more complete restoration contractor. So I guess I'm curious, you used to do this, do you still work with NADCA at all as well? No, I haven't worked with them for oh, 12 or 13 years. Okay, and so you've gotten more involved with assisting restoration contractors in understanding these issues as opposed to people who are strictly in the business of duct cleaning? Yes, I just felt that you know the value to the individual building owner, okay, a building owner does not want to know whether they have a clean system or a dirty system all the time. They want to fix the problem they have in a building. And dirt is a good indicator or particulate is a good indicator of a problem. Mold is a good indicator of a problem in a building. And I wanted to be able to add more arrows to my quiver, so to speak. Now, you, you mentioned mold a few times. What what are some of the uh, more interesting mold remediation type projects you've worked on, and what were the challenges, the biggest challenges that you faced? I mean, you mentioned one building that was torn down. I'm kind of curious about that one, Davidge. Why wasn't it able to be remediated? You mean after spending half a million dollars on trying to remediate? Okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's my question. I, what what you know, happened? In that, in that particular building, they just realized that they had a building with but antiquated ventilation systems uh, that could no, no longer handle the capacity of the students that were in the uh, building. You know, nothing for, you know, schools don't think twice about it normally when they go from, you know, 10 people in a classroom to 15 people to 20 people to 25 to 30. They just put more, they, they just put more uh, chairs in the classroom. But they have to understand that every time you add five to 10, every time you add a person, you're changing the sense point heat you know, loads for that building. So that was the reason there. Uh, secondly, I guess, you know, the most interesting, the most interesting you know, cases I've had have been working in the pharmaceutical industry where the clearance criteria is uh, zero for mold and mold spores on systems. And instead of using, you know, cleaning with a biocide or a sanitizer disinfectant, we're, try, we're required to use uh, sterilants, which are, 
significantly more hazardous and risky to play around with. Amen. I've got a fire restoration question for you, Davidge. It's it's common in in a building that suffered fire damage. When you look at the ceiling, you can see uh, soot accumulation around the you know the registers. Uh, what's that an indication of? Is that an indication that the entire system is contaminated or, or what? <laughs> <laughs> the contractor talking to me says it's always contaminated. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the truth is it's, it's, it's uh, generally uh, more cognizant of the ventilation pattern and re-entrainment. Uh, typically soots uh, around the register quite a bit when you, after you have a fire. And it is not an indication just because the ceiling is black or there's black around the ceiling uh, registers that the HVAC system is dirty. That's an important point. Thank you. And that is that accurate just with fires or also in, in general? Uh, I don't want to ruin my business completely. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, David. You agreed to come on. <laughs> but, yeah, it is, it is the case. It, it is not it, – it's a possibility. We typically find, you know, a lot of soot deposition around in areas where there's a photocopy machine. And I, I would imagine a lot of times people are, uh, that's got to be that black mold stuff there, Davidge, right? Yeah, you know, people, that, that is correct, okay? People will, you know, think that because it's black now, it's mold, and uh, that's not necessarily the case at all. Typically carbon deposits. Okay, great. Cliff, did you have anything no, you actually, wanted to add? And no, I, I uh, you know, we've got some time issues, so rather than uh, getting started on another long subject, I was thinking maybe we'd give it back to Dieter, see if he... Uh, Hello, can... Dieter, are you still with us? Yes, I am. Didn't have to go turn your pumps off yet? It's three o'clock. <laughs> anything you wanted to add before we go, Dieter? Well, I think I know the answer to the trivia question, and my Latin teacher in Germany would be proud of me. All right. I won't tell you the answer over the air. Well, we already you got... I think we, we really have to, the whole industry has to rethink their approaches towards the building of ventilation systems and the maintenance uh, uh, thereof. Uh, uh, we know we have a problem, and uh, there is a lot of work for everybody out there for quite some time to come. So even if we educate people and tell them how to do it right, uh, there still will be a lot of work for us out there. Well, thank you for that, Dieter. We, we did, by the way, get an answer uh, text message text messaged in. Yes. and uh, That's a correct answer. It's correct. So if you yeah. want to give it a shot, go for it. Is the fear that the moon wouldn't come up anymore? No, not exactly. Not exactly. Actually, ex luna scientia means from the moon knowledge, and that was the motto for flight Apollo 13. And today, oh, I see. Today's Friday the 13th, and oh. what triskaidekaphobia was is the fear of the number 13. <laughs> <laughs> so your Latin teacher would be... Your Latin teacher would still be proud of you, Dieter, I'm sure. Well, hey. Davidge? Yes. I'm sorry. I thought you had one uh, a comment for Dieter or a question. We kind of do it a little round table. I'm going to real quickly give you the, one of the more challenging problems with HVAC system hygiene. Sure. It's cleaning lead out of duct systems. Ooh. And how, and how is that done? 
Uh, it's very difficult. <laughs> <laughs> he could tell you, but he'd have to kill you. Let me, let me give you my number. Okay. <laughs> well, that's, that's, well, we find a lot in the rifle range and police ranges. Uh, pistol range. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Significant amount of lead in duct systems. Uh, and also where you've got, uh, you know, older, older buildings. Typically, we found that you don't need to worry about it as much as hygienists want to worry about it because it's going to stay in the duct system. It's not going to move or migrate. But when you do go in there and start cleaning, you would be disturbing that, and uh, you would have to make sure that you had processes in place to uh, ensure that Basically, it's it's handwork, okay? Mm -hmm. And if you would need to make the HVAC system or the duct system a Swiss cheese, that's pretty much what you have to do in order to so you've got to cut a lot of access panels to get in there and, and clean it by hand? Well, you know, you also have to look at, you know, some people look at it. If I only come one, one access hole, that's the only place that a consultant can test. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's, that's another way of looking at it, David. It's, uh, it's been a real pleasure having you on. Is there anything that we missed that you would like to add? I there's a whole number of things, but I, I think this is interesting, and I certainly appreciate you inviting me on the show. What we'd like to do is uh, down the road, we're we're coming up on uh, a milestone here. Boy, if, well, we've got 30 shows in the can here, and uh, down the road, we're going to try and get a group of former guests, you know, together to do a little round table. We'd love to have you back to do that. And uh, I'd like to get you and maybe Andy Osk and uh, a few others together, and maybe we'll, maybe we'll even get that. Uh, crazy guy out of uh, Boston or uh, that area up there, Mr. Staborik, to come in and uh, bless us with his presence here. I'm trying to give him a little bug here. Uh, Davidge, I'm sure he'll come along, but uh, we'd love to have you back and do that, but in the meantime, how can people get in touch with you if they would like to uh, ask you further questions or maybe use your services? Well, the simplest way, the easiest way is my email address. That's, you know, Davidge, D-A-V-I-D-G-E it's Davidge, D-A-V-I-D-G-E at A-O-L dot com. Well, you must have had that one for a long time to be able to get that, huh? No, I've, long enough, okay? I'm not calling my <laughs> Our computer science guy, I, you, you jumped on that early on. I'm not. all right well thanks again for joining us here davidge we really appreciate you uh joining us and uh informing our listeners a little bit more on these issues with hvac systems and we'll look forward to talking to you again down the road great talking to both of you thank you thank you all right well that wraps up another episode of indoor air quality radio iaq radio i'd like to thank my co-host here cliff slotnick it's always a pleasure Joe. my pleasure uh mr bill wagon the instructor extraordinaire here thanks for joining us thank you joe and zach cyber jockey cj's lock thanks joe thank you i also want to remind people that uh, you can get uh, american iaq console credits for Listening to the show, if you uh, just send me an email at joe.hughes, H-U-G-H-E-S, at iaqtraining.com, we'll send you out a quiz, and uh, you can answer the questions from the quiz, and we'll verify that uh, you've listened to the show. Get yourself a credit for your certification renewal. Thanks again to also all of our loyal listeners out there. Downloads are coming along real nice. We've got a few live people on here, and thanks for joining us again for another episode of IAQ Radio.
This has been another IAQ Radio production.